Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning's reading is taken from Isaiah. It's on page 696 of, uh, of the Church Bible. It's Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 8. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among unclean people, a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Thanks, Andy. So before we get going, get stuck into Isaiah, I'd like you to imagine that you've got a piece of paper uh, in front of you, like my piece of paper here, and on it you draw a big circle. Now this circle it represents everything that there is to be known in the universe. Every bit of possible knowledge is, is represented by this big circle. And then the next thing I ask you to do is to draw another circle within that big circle. And this smaller circle represents everything that you know of that bigger circle. And chances are, actually, that a chisel tip marker pen is far too crude an instrument to draw this, this small circle. Given the bigness of the universe and our smallness, or even given the smallness of things like nanotechnology and, and our clumsy bigness, the inescapable conclusion is that you know, we are basically ignorant <laughs> creatures. We don't know, a whole, we haven't got much of a clue um, about things. And yet, we claim, we attempt to speak about God, about the, the sort of 
big level truth that sits all over um, this, that created the entire big circle and holds it into being. Is that not, and we're not the only people who try to speak about this, this big level, but nevertheless, we are among those who, who claim to have something to say about God, about big, big truth. Is that not unlikely? Us within our little speck of knowledge could, could grasp or say anything true or meaningful about something so vast and big. Is it not unreasonable? Uh, is it not impossibly arrogant even to, to open our mouths and talk about God? So if there was a spectrum like right down the, the middle of church and from here, um, this at one end of the spectrum, we'll call this the, the confident, talkative end. And um, this is where you are if you are clear on most of the answers and you've got plenty of words that you're not afraid to use when talking about God because we've got the Bible, right? And we can quote it and uh, it's as straightforward as that. Through to down the other end of the spectrum, right down into the vestry. This is the kind of um, mysterious... This is where you are if you're, if you're kind of consumed with the, the mystery of uh, the, the majesty of, of who or what uh, God is. And, and clearly our words fail when we're trying to think about anything so massive as this. And there's this philosopher, Wittgenstein. I don't know if anyone's tried to read him. I had a cartoon version of him and <laughs> couldn't quite understand that. But um, at the end of one of his books, he famously says um, that that which we cannot speak of, we must, we must pass over in silence. And so the people who'd resonate with that kind of wisdom would be at that end. I wonder where you would place yourself along this, this spectrum. You don't have to tell me. I wonder where you would have placed yourselves five years ago along this spectrum, or 10 years ago. Has there been any movement? Um, I, I wonder, actually, when you're thinking about that, if there's been a bit of a drift uh, this way. That's certainly a part of my story as I kind of grew up, I guess, and I thought about just the immense mystery of this life that we get to live and, and the bigness of everything. Suddenly, I found myself... <laughs> at this point where I find it really hard even to pray out loud because my words, they sounded so small and uh, inadequate. Um, anyone know what I'm talking about, that, that place? Is it possible to hold together an appropriate sort of humility, reverence before the, this, this mystery of God and a confidence in talking about him? That's our question for today. We're going to be carrying on our year of biblical literacy after the uh, nice, forgive my piece of paper covering over our, our wonderful frame, but we are carrying on. We, are, we have asked the preliminary questions back in October. We've looked through God's unfolding story, the big story of the Bible, and now we're diving into the Old Testament in these next weeks. Uh, you'll remember our bookshelf that sort of gives a picture of the, the collection of writings that is the Bible. And you've got these three sections of the Old Testament. These next three weeks, we're diving into the second section. We can zoom in on that. And within the prophets, you have, um, it includes the historical books. If you're keeping up with the daily readings, um, if you're not, don't worry, but why not jump back on board New Year's resolution? Um, just catch up. Don't, don't bother trying to catch up. Just jump in with where we are. We're in these historical continuing the story uh, sorts of books at the moment, your Samuel, your Kings, um, and then you've got major and minor prophets. The minor prophets are called minor because they only wrote little books, 
And so they didn't write many words. So they're just minor profits. It's as, it's as complicated as that. And the major ones are the big ones. We're going to be taking one major prophet, Isaiah. Uh, this is the most phenomenal, significant, uh, extraordinary book uh, in the Bible. It's, it is right up there. This is um, uh, the frankincense and the gold. This was from Isaiah um, earlier. But there's, there's so much more to it than that as well. I'm really excited. Um, it is more significant even than Bono. And we have a little video clip lined up. And this is my man, Eugene Peterson, um, the guy who, who wrote the message translation that we sometimes read from. And he was working on it uh, when he got invited to come and hang out with you 2 And this is what <laughs> he's recounting it. Listen to this. spend a couple of days with them, uh, just to hang out. But I was, I, was, I was pushing a deadline on the message. Uh, I was finishing up the Old Testament at the time, and I really couldn't do it. I, I, uh, you may be the only person alive <laughs> who would turn down the opportunity just to make a deadline. I mean, come on. It's, it's Bono, for crying out loud. Dean, it was Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you just love that moment of clarity and um, of seeing properly for once? And that is what the prophets give us, actually, these, this moment of clarity and seeing properly. Uh, and that's what we, we benefit from. It's not always easy to understand, though, uh, by no means. Martin Luther... Uh, 15th, 16th century reformer, um, he said this about the prophets, that they have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make heads or tails of, of them or see where they are getting at. That's because they're poets. They write in poetry oftentimes, and poetry is what you have to read slowly it's going to be kind of a, a massacre when we get to it in our daily readings and we're just chomping through at like four chapters a day of this stuff. Um, it'll be kind of useful for just kind of getting a, a glimpse of the bigger picture. But this is stuff that you have to read slowly, uh, read again and again, like any poetry. Um, read it over years, revisit it, and suddenly you find, ah, oh, suddenly I get it, and it speaks to that bit, and oh, things begin to make sense. Um, the other thing that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets are, and I love this, is that they, I think they are the original performance artists. So back in the 60s, you had people like um, Eves Klein. Um, this is called Into the Void, apparently, as he's kind of... It's, it's a social critique on the, the pride and the hubris around NASA and you know, putting a man on the moon and all that. And, and here he is, like, jumping off, making his deep point or whatever. The Old Testament prophets were up to this stuff way before um, uh, the performance artists of the 60s and beyond were. They were well into all of these embodied actions, living out odd things very publicly um, in order to make their social point. We'll be getting more into the poetry and the performance art of Isaiah in the next couple of weeks. But after the first five chapters, you get this break in the poetry in Isaiah, and it describes this life-changing, career-begetting, amazing vision 
visionary experience of God that he has. Famous chapter, chapter 6. Let's jump straight into it. Verse 1, it might be useful to, to follow it if you have a Bible in front of you. Verse 1, in the year that King Isaiah died, we'll get more into the context of Isaiah in the next couple of weeks, but this just gives us a date of about 640, um, 640 years before Jesus is born. Um, and what happened? He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. No one really knows what the seraphim are. I think it's the only time that this word appears in, um, in the Bible. Uh, but one of them, whatever they were, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. So normally, in Hebrew, you get this device called repetition. Anyone know about repetition? <laughs> it's when something appears twice, and it denotes a, um, a completeness. So like in the creation accounts where you have God saw what he'd made and said it was good, the word is tov. And then at the end of the sixth day, when all is said and done, he says God saw what he'd made and it was very good. The Hebrew is tov, tov. It was good, good, you know. Um, here, it's triple. This is an overwhelming experience. Someone described this as the super superlative. And it's that one and only time in the Old Testament that this holy, holy, holy appears. It gets echoed in um, Revelation at the end of the, the, of the New Testament. And of course, it gets echoed every Sunday in our songs, uh, in our liturgy. I wonder how many millions of people all around the world just this morning will have said those words, holy, holy, holy. These words from Isaiah chapter 6. So he has this utterly overwhelming vision, which he never recovers from. He refers to God as, as the Holy One of Israel. Um, I think it's about 26 times in his, and there's only four other occasions in the Bible where this title appears. This, this is such an Isaiah phrase, this Holy One of Israel. He never recovers from this overwhelming vision. Um, he saw something, going back to our piece of paper, he saw something of the God who stands over all of this. He stands, from his little speck, he claims to have seen something of the God who stood over all of this. Um, he said he saw the Lord. Well, he clarifies then immediately. He says that the hem of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Where did he meet God? In the temple. This is the place where heaven meets earth. Um, and just the hem of the Lord's robe filled this meeting place. It's like in Ezekiel, another one of the prophets, um, and he says it like this. He's, he has a similar, you know, overwhelming experience of the glory of God and the throne and the, the light, and he says it like this. He says that it was, it was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. <laughs> well, that's like three times removed from saying that he actually saw God. So those of us who are who would have placed ourselves up at this confident, talkative end of the spectrum, we need to take notes that when the Old Testament prophets had this truest, deepest, most overwhelming encounter of getting closest to the God of it all, they were kind of freshly aware that they didn't have a clue just how big, uh, just how good he was. It was this kind of deeply humbling moment. It's a devastating experience. In fact, because Isaiah's immediate reaction to this moment of encounter is what? Verse 5, woe is me. 
this uncompromising light is utterly exposing of all the darkness and the mess in his life, in the society that he's from. Woe is me. So those of us up at this end of the spectrum where we're more familiar with the, the humility and the, the mystery of existence and we're slower to speak, find words about God, got to realize that what is revealed in this moment of clarity, it was not a kind of vague, soft spirit of animating life force or something that was revealed, but actually someone who was deeply personal, deeply threatening, in fact, their presence was, deeply interested in the details of our lives. So I want to tell you about, just a slight gear change, tell you about um, my daughter, two-year-old daughter and her clock. So she's got one of these grow clocks, I think they're called. Um, there it is, where the, uh, you know, the theory is that at the designated time, the sunlight comes on <coughs> and she knows far before she can tell the time that this is when she's allowed to get up and um, you know, the day has begun. And so on a successful morning, um, which this morning wasn't, um, <laughs> she um, opens the door and you hear her coming and she pushes past the mess down my side of the bed and she announces with delight, the sun's awake and it's, um, and it's like, okay, here we go. <coughs> it, it struck me the other day that she probably doesn't have any idea what the sun actually is. She's probably never looked at, I hope she's never looked at the sun. Um, she's never had the planets explained to her. Um, so the sun probably doesn't mean much beyond the smiley face uh, that comes on. The sun's awake uh, in the morning on her clock. Could it be that our comprehension of God is something akin to a two-year-old's uh, comprehension of the sun? You know, he's got our, we've got our familiar sentences down, the sun's awake, but it has more to do with a smiley face on a clock than it does the actual sun, which, let me tell you this, burns up 600 million tons of hydrogen every second at temperatures reaching up to 15 million degrees centigrade. And yet, it will not run out of gas for another 130 million years. You, know, you just cannot comprehend this. You cannot look at it. Let's remember that God is God. He's not safe. He's utterly threatening, in fact. And just a glimpse of the appearance of the likeness of his glory obliterates our pride, and his presence destroys all sorts of pretensions that we've got life altogether. Thank you very much. All of us, no matter how cool, no matter how successful in our careers, our families, our whatever, all of us stand before him painfully exposed. But then here's the first surprise that comes along. One of the seraphim, whatever they are, gets a coal, flies down, touches his lips, and says, Isaiah, behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So we haven't got much of a clue how demanding God's holiness is, but we neither do we have much of a clue how astounding is his mercy. Actually, what it is is that within his holiness, right here we see that within it, part of it, 
it holds a grace and a mercy that is way beyond our comprehension. It's who he is. It's what he does. Just one touch takes away Isaiah's guilt, enables him to carry on standing there. And it's this foretaste, of course, of the good news of Jesus Christ, who's the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Just one touch properly takes away your guilt, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what family mess you've come from, no matter what kind of corrupt system, corrupt society that your life is inescapably enmeshed within, actually just one touch and you can stand. The touch of forgiveness, like a hand reaching out across a broken relationship and, and grasping yours, surprising your shaking hands. It's grace. It's scandalous, you don't deserve it, but it's glorious, it's amazing. It's who he is, it's what he does. Will you receive it? Don't pull away from that touch. But that's not the end of it. The second surprise is this commission that follows. Just a minute ago, his blood was running cold. He's like, I'm surely doomed. There is no way I can stand in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And then suddenly, before he knows it, the man with unclean lips is being commissioned to speak on behalf of the Holy One of Israel. Can you believe it? If you read on, you realize that this is a really tough gig. Basically, he's told it's not going to work. You're going to have this profoundly unrewarding, uh, unrecognized, unfruitful ministry. Faithfulness does not always look like fruitfulness. Take note. And yet, we have the privilege of looking at Isaiah's ministry, however many years later, uh, against a wider horizon. And we see that through this man, through his words, it's, it spawns some of the most remarkable writings that this world will ever see, I believe. And an unspeakably valuable ministry. The vision is extraordinary. How did it happen? How did a man from a little dot like this uh, get to speak on behalf of the God of it all? I'll tell you how, because in that moment of encounter in chapter 6, the God of it all stepped down into Isaiah's small speck of comprehension, touched and cleansed his life, and made it possible for him to speak with something true, something so extraordinary, actually. The New Testament is pretty clear that we are all invited, commissioned, equipped to be God's witnesses in this day and age, to speak for him, to embody his hope, to tell his story, and we can do it because he has stepped down into our small speck of, of comprehension, into the small circle of things that we can know about. Ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ, he stepped in and he touches and he cleanses our lives and he makes it possible for us to live and to speak for him. We haven't got much of a clue in ourselves, but God has given us more than a clue. It's a remarkable thing. And so a genuine experience of God smashes away all the pride, all the pretensions, all of our easy answers. And in a sense, it marches us down the aisle and we realize we haven't got a clue. But in that very same moment of encounter, it's like God takes our hands, walks us back up the aisle, back to the microphone, and he says, I want you to speak for me. That's an awesome thing. No one's more surprised 
about that than I am. You know, that's why we pray over there before, beforehand. Because you're like, I'm about to open my mouth and, and, and try and say some words on behalf, something true about, towards, with other people, about the Holy One of Israel. How on earth can we do I'm just the guy who likes playing football, gets moody when he hasn't eaten properly, uh, and is, lacks the self-discipline to keep his side of the bed tidy. You know, that's, that's me. But just one touch of God's grace qualifies me. It's an amazing thing. And that's where you can find humble confidence. I'm ordained. It's kind of like my job. I find myself speaking about God um, to people uh, quite a lot. And um, after all my mistakes in that, and there'll be plenty more to come, I'm sure, um, but if I were to offer a couple of tips real quick, I'd say this, start by listening. This, this humble confidence, what does it look like? Start by listening, asking real questions, seeking first to learn, to listen, to understand, not crowbarring in our answers too quickly to places that they don't fit. Acknowledge your weakness, number two. Sometimes, I, you know, it's fine to admit you don't have all the answers, you don't. <laughs> I even say sometimes things like, I know these words are gonna sound ridiculous, of course they are, because I'm trying to speak about the God of it all in the English language, you know, that's, that's okay. Those sorts of things help, just acknowledge your weakness. Uh, number three, use scripture. For some reason, it seems to carry more weight than uh, my own words. Uh, number four, it doesn't depend on you. Rest. It doesn't all depend on you. Um, I'm sure many of us have had that experience of God doing something way more with, way more than that, that sentence deserved. So he's touching someone's life, someone's heart with those, those little words that you put together. It's almost like I think the Holy Spirit leans on our words, delights to lean on our words and just do something uh, wonderful with it. Rowan Williams, I finish with this, has a little phrase, uh, pilgrim people, which is really helpful, I think, describing the people of God. By definition, our story has not yet finished. By definition, we have not arrived yet. We don't have all the answers neatly tied up, but we do have something to say. Truly, we don't have a clue, but the God of it all has moved towards us and given us more than a clue. So as we come, to stand around his table. Let's stand in awe. Let's receive his touch of grace. Let's hear his call. And then, with humility and with confidence, as we go out of here, we can actually be witnesses to the Holy One of Israel. It's amazing.